Ladies Room. We are your hosts, the fantastic Jane McManus. I'm Julie DeCaro. We are here to talk sports, sports adjacent things, and be women while doing it. Um, speaking of being a woman, uh, Jane, you know what I did tonight? What did you do? Before we get into anything else, I sat in the car, waited for my kid to finish wrestling practice. And Very womanly. Yes. And I it dawned on me because conference meets our conferences tomorrow. Um, his team is likely going to get their butt kicked by the team they're facing because they've gotten their butts kicked by them before. And it was the last time that I will sit in the car and wait for a kid to be done with practice. Oh, and I, I know. And I mean, they started playing t-ball and soccer when they were like three, four. Yeah. So it's like it's been like such a huge part of my life. And I got so much reading done. (laughs) Yes, right. Over the years. Yeah. I just like show up and be like, all right, you know, instead of going home and going back, I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to read or take a nap or whatever. Um, So you could feel two ways about this. It could be either one of those things where you're wistful and you're sad or you could be like, you know, Maxine Waters, like reclaiming my time, right. reclaiming my time. No, I feel, I do feel very wistful about it. It's been a wistful couple of weeks because we had graduation and then we just had senior night for wrestling. And now it's like, you know, it's I have, like, I was so involved with their sports lives. Like I, you know, I was, I was coached for like a ton of things and I was like the team mom and I, you know, and it's just like that part of my life is just over now. Well, it's not over. You're just setting those little butterflies off into the world. I know. Wait till I get grandkids, man. <laughs> I'm going to be like Jennifer Capriati's dad out there. That's a, that's a disaster waiting to happen. I've told yeah, my kids they're not obligated to, to reproduce for me. Oh, that well, they get to do whatever they would like with their own biology. That's true. That's true. But, but if, if I do have grandkids down the road, I will be the sportsy grandmother. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I'll it was like just your grandson's soccer team. How cool right. would that be? No kidding. Look at how cool my grandma is. Well, my kid is always like, People are like, oh, your kid must think you're the coolest. And I'm like, no, they don't. They don't think I'm cool at all. And, you know, people are like, oh, your mom's a sports writer. And he's like, yeah, don't talk to her. She's weird. And I'm just like, so um, when he was amazing how we don't get the cachet for the cool things that we do with our own family. They find it boring. Yes. He's walking away with I'm like, you you have friends whose moms don't even know, like, who plays for what team in this town. Right. You know, like one of their friends' moms is like, oh, White Sox. Now, is that baseball? And I was like. So I'm like, you could have gotten that, mom. That's right. So he's walking away with his group of friends and I rolled down the window and I'm like, I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He just like drops his head in shame. I think my oldest was in fourth grade before she realized I had a cool job when she casually mentioned to a teacher that I covered the Jets and they were like, <laughs> what, what, what? Your mom does what? Yeah, see, they <laughs> happily tag along with me whenever they can get, like they can inviggle their way into whatever I'm doing. But when it comes to just me in general, not so cool. Yes. You're still waiting in the car for the wrestling match to finish. Right. I did feel better with Catherine Hahn's kids telling her she was embarrassing when she was practicing the Agatha All Along song. Well, okay. So I was like, all right, so it's me and Catherine Hahn. We're going to hang out together. It is a universal thing that no matter how cool you are, you are still uncool because you have, yeah. Do not think you're cool. Correct. 
All right. Well, so we're recording in the middle of the French Open, and I feel like we've been talking about Naomi Osaka uh, nonstop. And we're going to get to talk to her about her a little bit more today with a really timely and fantastic guest. I, I can't believe we keep getting some of these people. Like, how, like why are, uh, how are we getting these people? We just well, are. I would also, just like to say, like, we've spoken to so many people who have real power in yeah. sports, like right. real power to make decisions in sports. And I just, I agree. I'm a hundred percent impressed with the people who come on and what they tell us. And we had actually an email, Julie, which I will send to you, but we had an email this week from someone who was like, your podcast should probably be like required reading for any sort of sports journalism course. Oh, I like that. It was nice. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. So coming up in a little bit, we're going to talk with Stacey Allister, who is the head of the USTA and the U S open. Um, so fantastic years was in charge of the WTA. So she knows, you know, certainly the Serena Williams inside and out. Yes. And I have heard some of her stories that she cannot tell publicly. And like, (laughs) she knows where all the bodies are buried. Let's just say that. But before we get to that, um, you know, I sort of want, so we had big news today. We had Serena getting beat in straight sets and we had Roger Federer pulling out, um, because of his knees. He had, I think, double knee surgery last summer, something like that. And I just sat back and waited to see what the reaction was for someone pulling out due to their body as opposed to someone out pulling out due to their mental health. And of course, there was no reaction. Well, it's very different. I think also you realize with both Federer and Serena Williams that you are watching two of the all-time greats ever to pick up a racket. And they are doing everything that they can to just preserve opportunities and the clay is not their surface for either of them. And so they are much better on grass. The grass tournament is coming up next. Um, The grass major where they could possibly add to, you know, the, the bucket of uh, grand slam victories that they have and, you know, trying to kind of consolidate a legacy. And if it's not going to happen at the French, you got to move on, you know, you got to figure out what, what's, you know, it's next, next tournament up kind of. Yeah, that, that is correct. And, you know, uh, I was, I, I felt like Serena was playing really well. I felt like she was sort of breezing, you know, through the rounds. Uh, and, the, and the tournament was breaking, you know, kind of for her. Right. Like sometimes it just happens where you have players who pull out, you have, uh, you know, players who you always lose to or who are certainly contenders who lose early for whatever reason. And it just seems like a path is opening up that is not, you know, that it's, it's being, some of the work is being done for you. And it just seemed like that might be happening. And I kind of was almost afraid to mention it um, and, or to think about it too much, because I feel like I've gone into so many grand slam tournaments in the last three years thinking, is this going to be 24 for Serena Williams? Right. And because of course it's tying um, the gotta go Margaret court record of 24 uh, grand slam victories that, that was she's gotta go. Before, she's gotta go. And it was put together before the open era began. So it, you know, in so many ways, Serena Williams has already proven herself to be the greatest woman ever to play the game in so many statistical categories, but boy, it would be nice for her to get that one. And also Um, in the category of like human being as opposed to (laughs) Margaret Court. Well, certainly she's, she's, (laughs) yeah, she's certainly advocated, I think for, for, for cultural change and societal change. And well, I mean, all you have to do is as our, as our guest is about to tell us, look at the women who play tennis now to see the legacy of Serena Williams. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, getting that number since she had her daughter has been kind of an albatross at this point. She's gotten so close. And so instead of going in every single tournament thinking, is this the one? Is this the one? I, I was kind of laying back like, 
you know, like like a somebody has a no hitter going on. You're just kind of like, oh, what's going on? What's happening to French? You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I I remain hopeful that she is going to catch fire and just catch lightning in a bottle one of these tournaments and get to 24. Um, but I also have sort of adjusted my attitude as well. I just want to enjoy her for as long as we have her. Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, I try not to be as like amped up for her to win as I was before, because I mean, first of all, I don't care how, how many nannies you have, how rich you are, how great of a husband you have who helps out with the kids. Having a child is exhausting. And Olympia is right in the midst of that, like super exhausting toddler period. So I don't, I mean, the fact that she is able to do this and any woman who's able to like have a small child and be a professional athlete just absolutely blows my mind. It's a hundred percent. Plus her, her actual pregnancy and birth were no pregnancy. I mean, mean, by by the standards of normal, uh, difficult human experiences, hers was particularly difficult and she almost died and she had some pulmonary embolisms afterwards. And it took a particularly long, you know, you have to recover from that. There is no way to continue to train while you have something like that going on. Right. And I remember when she had her first embolism and my doctor was like, oh, she'll never be able to play again. Like she just can't, you know, and here we are, how many grand swims later? So, I mean, yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, like I said, I, you know, we all, I mean, we all want her to get to 24. Yes. Does she need to get to 24 for us to say she's the greatest who's ever played the women's game? No, no. And I think, you know, you know what I think, I think we, so, so this is part of, I think the, the influence of a, of a male mentality and a competitive mentality on looking on the way we look at, at players, which is got to have the number to be the greatest, right? That's such a, it's such a, um, inflexible way of actually assessing greatness and an inadequate way of assessing greatness, I think also, um, particularly in this instance, because so much has changed. The technology of the rackets has changed so much. She changed the game. It didn't, it, you know, it didn't, it didn't force itself on her. She forced herself on it. And so I think that's a completely different way of, of being great. Um, that a number like, you know, Margaret Court winning all of the Australians for a long time because she lived in Australia and a lot of players didn't travel to Australia to play the Australian Open for a long time. It's just, it's not even comparable. And so we have this number that's kind of standing in the way of us being able to declare, you know, completely openly that she's the greatest player ever to play women's tennis. And um, and I'm kind of getting more tired of the number than I am of Serena Williams not being able to get it. Absolutely right. Um and it's, you know, especially when you look at the way they have lived their lives where Margaret Court has advocated for exclusion of people and leaving people out and some people being lesser people than others, while Serena has done the exact opposite and has sort of, you know, wedged the door open and held it open for all the young women of color coming behind her, um, who has advocated for women, for Black people, for people of color, every opportunity she's had. Uh, to me, in my mind, there's just no comparison. None. I think we've got, we've done and dusted that argument, Julie. No question. I think we've solved it here. No one else needs to ever think about 24 again. Correct. So uh, let's move on because I am dying to ask Stacey Allister what her take was on Naomi Osaka's withdrawing from the French Open. So we'll do that right after a quick break. Well, we couldn't have a more timely guest this week in the ladies' room. Joining us is Stacey Allister, who is the chief executive of professional tennis at the USTA and at the US Open. Stacey, thank you so much for hey, being Julie. here. Great to be here with you and Jane. 
And we're so glad to have you. And I oh. think, you know, a week ago we were talking about Naomi Osaka and we who, here we are a week later and it's still the biggest story happening in sports right now, despite the French Open going on and Serena sailing through to the second round. So, you know, I, I guess the question that, that I have for you is as someone who is truly an insider in the tennis community, what was your take on the whole situation? Well, I think, Julie, like everyone, we all... Uh, I feel sad for Naomi and uh, hope she's doing well. Uh, I know she's home here in the States with her family and uh, <clears throat> that's a good place for her. Um, you know, what I can just say is that based on the information we had when decisions were made, uh, they were not aware of uh, the pain and anguish and the anxiety and depression that Naomi um has been experiencing. I think if that information uh, was available uh, to the Grand Slams when they were making their decisions in accordance with the rule book, they might've had an entirely different outcome. So I'd say people did the best they could with the information they have. Uh, the rules are the rules <laughs> and uh, accommodations for the rules weren't, uh, weren't available because oh, they were told that, that she was okay. Uh, but now I think the go forward for our sport, and it blends, I think, incredibly well coming off of uh, the month of May with uh, mental health and awareness. It just sheds a light <clears throat> to how important mental health is. And mental health is health. And Na Naomi having the bravery and courage to finally share with the world uh, the challenges that she has been experiencing as a young athlete, really in an adult world, well, is, 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 has already helped people. There are people around the world that we don't know today that her statement helps them feel they're not alone. And uh, you know, there's 260 million plus people in this world who suffer anxiety and depression, pandemic, has only escalated that, especially in the United States, are saying now one in four uh, Americans uh, are suffering with anxiety and depression. So we're, we're all going to get after how we can not do better is the wrong word, but how are we going to provide accommodations for individuals uh, with these mental health matters in a manner that's fair uh, and, and responsible? You took over as the president of the WTA in 2009 uh, until 2015, and, and now you're the chief executive of professional tennis um, at the USTA. So obviously you have a look at uh, how the thinking has evolved when it comes to mental health. And when, and you also have a, an idea, you know, not necessarily exactly what's happening with Naomi, but certainly how uh, tours and uh, tournaments work with players to, you know, behind the scenes, there are a lot of things that are available for players now that might not have been available, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, what, do, over the, you know, the time that you've been in, you know, what are some, what is some of the evolution in the way that people think about this issue? Sure. And just for context, I've been involved in the WTA since about 2000, because I was on the board. Okay. So it's, it's been a long journey. So I can speak uh, with that, that 20 years, uh, the, the WTA is, is world-class in athlete assistance beyond just the physical and the triage. They have dedicated staff for athlete assistance 
um, that includes uh, being on site for the athletes, training for staff, training for parents and coaches and agents so that we can be aware of these things. <clears throat> and uh, they put in a rule 20 plus years ago called the age eligibility rule because we were finding in the 90s, these young teenage phenoms who were children being catapulted into this adult world who are not emotionally, physically, <laughs> their hormones, they're not all lined up uh, as an adult, that we needed to have a stepped up program for them to play professional tennis. So you could, they could play so many at the age of 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. And I must tell you, during my uh, 10 years of being a staff person, first as president in 2006 and then chairman and CEO, I was constantly, uh, there was constant advocacy to tear down the age eligibility rule <clears throat> from those who wanted the commercial benefits. I had people say, Stacy, you're ruining women's tennis because we now no longer have these teenage phenoms. And I said, well, <clears throat> I'll take an athlete's career that was about 11 or 12 years on average to a 15, 16 year career and have a healthier person over missing this opportunity for a phenom. So the WTA has been all in. And the great thing that's going to come from this is now I think, not nothing, I know, ATP from the pandemic, their, their guys are struggling with mental health. Um, and this will be an awakening within the Grand Slams for all of us as a sport to come together to see what we can do uh, <clears throat> around the mental health of our athletes as well. Julie, if you don't mind me, I, can I get a double here? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, you know, I, you bring up the, the way that I certainly was there in the early two thousands covering t tennis when, when that was happening. And, um, and you had a number of very young players who were, were kind of catapulted up, not just by their own talent, but also by their, parents and their agents and people who are interested uh, in making money off of these young women, let's be honest. And a big part of it was, as you were talking about, was the marketing and some that there was an overt sexualization of very young girls on the tour as part of that. And, uh, and I, I think there were a number of people who found that very uncomfortable, even though it did end up, um, I'm sure making a lot of people money when it came to whose outfit was being worn on, on a show court. Um, but you did, that was, you know, it, and that was something, there were a lot of things that sprang from that, that were troubling in tennis and by, by being able to put those rules in, um, that was something that was really, I thought addressed pretty effectively. And I, it's interesting for me to hear you say that you had a lot of blowback on that. And I just, I I'm interested in hearing more about that. If you're, if you, if there's more to tell on that story. Well, I think it, it, it was sort of, as I outlined, um, there's no doubt in, in women's sport, the athletes are peaking earlier, right? Generally, if we look at across other sports, not just tennis. And athletes have a limited window for optimization of their revenues. And so those that are involved in the nucleus of those, their companies, right? This professional sport is a business. <clears throat> so they want to, including the, some athletes, 
um, they want to maximize those revenue opportunities while the, the, the going is good. And so um, it, it just takes a lot of discipline. And those athletes that we're now seeing playing well into their 30s, it's a long game. And um, they were very measured, not just in how much they played, but also the definition of their brand. This whole area around how an athlete wants to present themselves, you know, ultimately the athletes are independent contractors. We try to guide them on who they surround themselves with, how to pick a good agent, be responsible, financial education, uh, <clears throat> et cetera. And, the def and their brands are really their decisions. And that is a really interesting line around the sexualization. Uh, I sort of always had the lens, athletes first. <clears throat> and we are in the entertainment industry, but let's, let's be honest, right? They are celebrities. And along in the entertainment <clears throat> comes off court, the fashion, the beauty, uh, et cetera. Those that <clears throat> want to go to the extreme, <clears throat> they're permitted, you know, because it's their decision. I personally, my own, my own decision, that's not how I would want my daughter to approach it. But, uh, you know, my values are different than others. And so we can't impose those on, uh, on everyone. It's really the only line the tour has is if it's detrimental to the brand of the WTA, that's when they would then sort of step in. Um, so it's a, it's a really, it's a really interesting one, but I think we're seeing, you know, the athletes today be very strong, confident women. They are beautiful and beautiful is not just external, but internal. And that, you know, we even had a campaign, Strong is Beautiful, at, at one point. I think the tour today is still very mindful of that, as are other, other uh, professional women's sports as well. You know, I've got to ask you, Stacey, and Jane and I actually disagreed on this, I think, as much as we've disagreed on anything this week, which was alarming and upsetting for us. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was much harder on the media than Jane was when we talk about the way they uh, talk, especially to young women and particularly to young women of color. Um, you know, if every person, and I know Jane has covered Grand Slams, and if every person in that room was Jane McManus, I, I would not be able to say anything. But unfortunately, right. you know, I remember when I went to France in 93 for the first time, and I was really sort of bowled over by the, the blatant sexism that, you know, men approached me on the street with and the things people would say on television. And it's just, you know, we, we all live in different cultures and we're all sort of at different levels of progress. And, um, you know, I feel like we see every time, um, not, not just in tennis, but in, in lots of sports, you know, people asking just really inappropriate questions of young women. So I've said that I think the media needs to sort of take a look in the mirror at, at some of the questions that we ask and the way that we sort of go at people. And I think that with, you know, so many other people in sports have come forward and said, yeah, I feel this way too. And I also feel this way in press conferences. And so I wonder, you know, what, if anything, can the USTA or the WTA put into place to sort of help athletes through that situation? Oh, there's a lot of, there's a lot in that question, Julie. <laughs> I know, it just kind of kept going. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's hard to um, unpack that one. Let's start with, it is a global tour and you're right. We're, we are witnessing different cultures and, and different values and pro progress around the equality of women in society, full stop. 
And those experiences that you, you've outlined are real. And it is sad, still with this uh, approach that will ask the female about <clears throat> her outfit. <clears throat> we would never do that about the male athlete, never. But never be asked. It's always gonna be about the athletes, male athletes performance, but on the women's, uh, we, we still have this, uh, this gravitational pull. So <clears throat> I think the first and foremost is continuing to educate the athletes on media training. Because we all have to deal with people in our lives that you know can get under our skin and that's life, right? So dealing with those pressures and they are real. Exactly right. Um, you know, media is drastically changing in this world. You know, we don't have enough of Jane McManus's anymore. No, we don't. We certainly don't. <laughs> I will suck at that. <laughs> and we have, we're we seeing it across all genres of media, right? Of not just sport. We, we have a more casual, more negative tone, more sensationalized, and obviously social media that anybody can say they're a journalist now. Right. So what we can do, uh, you know, from the USTA and, and, and obviously we are... Um, Thinking about all this, actions will be taken quickly. Um, how can we improve the media room and the experience? I think, you know, the USDA does a great job. I'm not just saying it because <laughs> I've worked for the USDA. Well, I've, I've been around a long time. I've seen a lot of press conferences. We have a strong moderator. Always the, uh, and Jane is shaking her head. We, no one can, can see that, but on, on, the, on the podcast can confirm. Always one of our senior comms people in the room. Uh, the athlete can bring in a support team member and the tours are always in the room. So if something's going off, they step in right away. Uh, you know, the one simple thing I think, you know, we can do is they come into the U.S. Open after many tournaments and there could be a journal that is really, you know, upset an athlete, male or female. We should at least know that and be aware. We can be giving the heads up to the moderator so that that moderator is aware. And we would still, of course, allow that journal to participate uh, in the conference. But, you know, if, if something's uh, edgy, there's a way to shut this down. You know, and I, we saw this week athletes talking to the press about how they deal with media. The seasons one, the ones that that have the thick skin. It's much easier for those with the thick skin, but that comes with training. And uh, it's going to be incredibly interesting for sport beyond just tennis now, because we know under the American uh, Disabilities Act that psychiatric disorders like anxiety and depression require some accommodations for those individuals. We have accommodations for our youth um, who are challenged uh, with, you know, their test taking and verbal versus written instruction. So something great is going to come out of this. I just don't wish that it happened this way, but usually it takes a moment like this for us all to, to learn and be awoken. And I can tell you that the USTA is, is very committed um, to mental health uh, and, and of course, trying to help all of our athletes and staff members who are experiencing it. So the U.S. Open uh, probably 10, less than 10 years ago, went to a format where it calls on journalists who then identify themselves 
before they ask their question, which is a way of putting some accountability, I think, with each of the questions that's asked. It's a good move. And I, you know, I certainly think, you know, we know who's answering the question. It's fine to be able to identify ourselves before we ask as well. Um, I, and I have thought about that accommodation uh, issue also and thought, you know, you know, could she do a press conference where she's not in the room, she's on a screen? And would that diminish some anxiety? For, you know, finding ways like that, that we could try to um, mitigate that. Uh, you know, I think part of the reason that the slams have had such a, uh, let's say, firm policy when it comes to media, media uh, availability after matches is that marquee players all have reasons not to want to show up and talk to the press, right? Because it, they're they're maintaining their own brand. They have their own publicists. They have their own platforms. There's no need for them to go in. But younger players and players who aren't established do still need that media um, coverage. It's good for them to be able to uh, get to know their the fans and be introduced to the fans if they're on the dais being asked questions after beating a marquee player. So there, there's this give and take. And I think particularly with women's sports and particularly with women's tennis, because it's the most lucrative sport for women that there is out there. Namio Osaka was able to make $55 million last year in sponsorships and prize money. She couldn't do that in any other sport. Um, so I think part of the reason that the that women's tennis is as popular as it is, is its longevity, but also because co-ed events meant that the meet the sporting press was there to cover the men and they bumped into enough women's players over the years and got to know them and then realized, Oh, these are great stories too. And started covering it and taking it seriously. I think you, you don't find that same level, uh, that same pace happening when it comes to women's basketball, softball, um, soccer, certainly, even though the excellence I think of the American women is unparalleled, uh, across the world. So in some ways, I think you have to ask, you know, has, has the media and the availability of women uh, who play professional tennis helped make it a more popular sport over the years? I don't know if that's, if there still is necessarily, but it certainly has contributed. And for you, um, I guess the question then at the end of that ramble is, you know, why is women's tennis the most lucrative sport for women that's out there? Well, uh, I think there's a, four predominant reasons and one you've already named. So number one, it starts with amazing athletes. And we were blessed with uh, Billie Jean King. <laughs> and trailblazers even before Billie, uh, like Althea Gibson, and uh, even uh, Susan Langland and Helen Wills Moody. There's a great documentary coming out about the match of the century which was fantastic because those women in the 30s were really punching out for confident women to be part of society. So we start there, the original nine. And ultimately, we, the administrators, can only do so much. Athletes are what drive the business, and we work with them on their messaging. But they, they move societal change and business change, and that we're seeing that in basketball, we're seeing that in women's uh, football and, and hockey, et cetera, number one. Number two, in the 70s, we had business partners, sponsors, and promoters who believed in women's tennis. And they weren't gonna do uh, the classical return on investment business model. They looked at the long play and the, and the, the brand alignment and that this was gonna be good for women and women's society and their business. Uh, third, 
our sport's blessed with five major events a year. Four Grand Slams and then the year-end finals on the WTA and the ATP. Most of the other sports have a quadrennial. They'll have a World Cup. They'll have an Olympics. Out of sight, out of mind. Because we know we all fall in love with these amazing female athletes from all the other sports. But then they go dark. So as consumers, we can't have that ongoing connection with them. So we've had that stage. And lastly, combined events on those big stages where, as you said, fans got to see these amazing men and women. The media got to interview amazing and inspirational men and women. Sponsors. There's never a conversation uh, within in all my years of doing this, of ever having to give a fan a dime back because they saw a women's match or a sponsor wanting a different price because of uh, a combined event. So um, women's tennis has benefited from the combined product and equally the non-combined product. Both can be successful. And in Canada, I ran a women's only event that was incredibly successful and still is today. So it's the hybrid that, that also, I think, works for them. You know, that's a great point, Stacey. And I was just, as a soccer fan, just thinking, God, can I imagine what it would do for the women's game around the world if we had a combined men's and women's World Cup? happening at the same time on the same locations. Yes. You know, we we were lucky enough to have uh, Martina Navratilova on this podcast really early on. And one of the things we talked about was the fact that tennis has just this, especially, you know, on the women's side, has this long history of activism, starting with Althea Gibson, um, probably starting before that, and going, you know, through Billie Jean King, through Martina, through Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka. And one of the questions we asked her was, you know, what is it about women's tennis that seems to produce these women who are not only amazing athletes, but are also extremely confident in using their voice in ways that they know they're going to get blowback from, but um, they do it nonetheless. What did Martina say? <laughs> uh, gosh, what did she say, Jane? I mean, she talked about, you know, the strength of having to be out on the court on your own and the discipline involved and, you know, yeah. being around all, you know, having this legacy of women come before you. Um, but, you know, it's something I always think about because it's it, we do seem to have, I mean, the WNBA is, is incredible. Of course, there's incredible women activists in all sports, but but tennis really seems to have a lineage that sort of stands above everyone. And of course, everyone listening can go to Apple Podcasts and download our episode with Martina and everything. <laughs> there we go. All right. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I do know when I speak to, um, to Peachy Kalmeyer, who is the longest standing employee of the WTA and instrumental in Title IX, there is this uh, culture, DNA, that was built in the 70s with Billy, the original nine, standing up to the establishment. And they went from town to town selling women's tennis. Chrissy and Martina were right there, and Billy passed the baton to them. The success of the WTA really has a lot to do with what Billy and Chrissy did because uh, <clears throat> Billy started it, but really those two women drove it. I just think it's the ultimate foundation that it's their organization, they're proud of it. And we, we teach the history because history is our future. We can only learn and stand on the shoulders of those who have paved the way before, just like we do for all the women who have made societal advances for us. And um, 
we, we just have this energy and culture of confidence. We want them to, to participate. They're participating governance and they are smart young businesswomen and there's good education to support them. And you also had with, with Venus and Serena Williams to kind of come into that. I, I mean, I think that there were some growing pains when they came and, and joined the tour. Um, you know, the beads being booed uh, at one American event. It, you know, there were a number of things that were, I think, where you had to, as a as somebody who was aware of the way race intersects with different fan bases, just be kind of, uh, you know, disappointed in that rollout. But I do think over the the now 40 years they've been playing tennis, it seems like they've been here. Like <laughs> no, but, but they've been in the game now for decades and they've made, and I think we, in some ways they've brought everyone in tennis along from the tournaments to the tour, um, to the grand slams, to the fan base. Um, and, no and it is, it, I'm sorry. No question. No question. And, and it's not, it's not so much activism, although that has been a big part of it, particularly in the last decade. Um, but it's also been by presence and strength. Um, and, and greatness, I think, uh, which, which brings a lot of people along. And, and I'm interested to know as someone who was, you know, in a position of leadership at that, when they, you know, during some of those moments, what was your role in figuring out how to address the issue of race forthrightly and to make sure that they were always treated fairly, uh, and given what they were due? Mm Mm-hmm. When they first came on the scene, uh, I was pretty young in, in my career up in Canada. And uh, I just remember them coming up as the teenagers with their beads. And uh, we were so darn excited to have them <laughs> um, because they were incredibly special. Um, you know, I can remember watching as a fan and just, you know, a member of Tennis Canada. Uh, how the family came on and, and how Richard, <laughs> uh, um, you know, had his presence, King Richard, and there's a documentary coming out. Uh, and then I've had, the, you know, the pleasure to work with that, with them, and both of them were very active in the player council. What I will say is, again, the WHA just has this culture of equality, right? There's a foundation of equality. Yes, it has been a predominantly white man sport. And I did say white man because it predominantly has been a white man. Even in 2021, I'm usually the only woman in the room. Uh, But it has been, activism can come in different ways. And you just described it really nicely. Serena and Venus's activism has been about their presence, has been about showing up on court, has been about strength. Venus is one, is, I call Venus the modern day Billie Jean King, <clears throat> uh, in a quiet way. We would not have equal prize money at Wimbledon and Roland Garros in 2007 had it not been for Venus Williams. She served on the player council for 14 years. So, um, and you know, we, there's a lot of stories fans don't know, but we're seeing it like. You have to look at the top 100 American women. A lot of them are of color. <laughs> that is a direct correlation to Venus and Serena and the Williams family because it was a family. It is a family affair. It still is today. Um, and they have transformed the sport, not just on how they play, but how we look. And as 
the USTA, our mission is to promote and grow the sport and for it to be equal. No sport, we, we swear equal, we need to start looking equal and inclusive. And so we're working hard at that and <clears throat> hoping that they'll continue all the great work that they do in that space. You know, Jane wrote a really beautiful piece about uh, Naomi Osaka not being Serena's rival, but being her legacy, which I thought was absolutely one of the best things, one of the best takes I've ever read on what Serena Williams and Venus are giving to this game. And maybe we could just take a moment and have a Venus Williams appreciation moment on the show, because we talk about Serena almost every week, but I I don't know if there's anyone I love to watch play as much as Venus with those big sweeping strokes. Look, they are both two incredibly special uh, human beings and uh, they are so different. They are the tightest sisters I have ever seen in my life, (laughs) but their legacy is deep. We haven't even begun to understand it and see it. Uh, But uh, there's no doubt Naomi is part of their legacy. Coco Goff, you know, and the list the list goes on of the young African American uh, players that are that are playing not just in this country but around the world, thanks to them. And men, you know, we shouldn't just we shouldn't be so exclusive. Uh, they, they transform to also uh, little boys who want to play the sport as well. You know, and and I give the USTA credit as well for saying. Uh, okay, we have these two superstars on the women's side in with James Blake. And, you know, we better make sure we're getting the Harless Tennis Club involved in things. And we better make sure we're reaching out, you know, in, in communities that we don't normally reach out in to make, to find the next players that can, can, you know, that look like them and can play too, and who may not have the money or the racket or the equipment or the coaching or whatever, and to give them access. And I, and I think the USTA in a way that the PGA tour didn't really necessarily do quite as much, although they do have the first seed program, but it didn't, it certainly didn't change the Tiger Woods and his presence didn't change the way that golf looked in the way that Venus and Serena Williams affected tennis. And I, I think that there's a parallel there and an interesting story to be done at some point. Um, I also, I also think combined with Venus and Serena's contributions, we have to recognize Althea's and do a better job at uh, the groundbreaking. She paved the way for Arthur and Billy and Venus and Serena. And Arthur Ashe also uh, paved the way significantly. He established something we call uh, the National Junior Tennis League across the country. It's run by our foundation. And it is about uh, serving communities of of boys and girls who um, are are in uh, underserved communities to get them off the streets. It's all about education with tennis and the stories for the past 50 years from the foundation are immense on how uh, so many of those young people have gone to college and are successful contributors. So again, we we are blessed with amazing athletes as a sport. And that has been uh, the foundation of our sports success on and off the court. That's I think what truly makes a champion. All right. So I have one one final question for you. It's kind of a pet question of mine um, because it's something I've kind of been mulling and thinking about. And it's this idea of uh, women's sports on TV, because we've been talking about this a lot on the pod and, you know, so many sports have had trouble. Women's sports have had trouble finding broadcasters who will show them in the prime time, that sort of thing. I know you got your start in sales and marketing, 
way, a long, long time ago um, when you first came in as a professional in tennis. And I am just curious about this interplay of, and I think it happens less in tennis, but I'm thinking because you've had such expertise over the years with how broadcast deals are put together um, kind of on the, on international and national level, maybe you have some insight into this. And, and it's this, it's the, the idea that advertising and who you're advertising to and advertising to men through sports, but not to women through sports. And what kind of effect does that have on women's sports ability to get those broadcast deals? Is there a relationship there? I think generally we still have an antiquated, uh, advertising model on the linear platforms. Uh, so, you know, we know all the data, you know, 90% plus of the decision-making uh, individuals in, in marketing are men. They are gonna be predisposed to men's sport and men's sport delivers uh, obviously a predominant men's audience with a still 30, 40% of women. And that's why you see NFL and NHL, NBA working hard at, at adapting and addressing the women's consumer. So if you're a buyer of media based on an old model of just eyeballs, return on investment, it's an efficient, it's an efficient spend. You know, where we, you know, it's a chicken and an egg. If you don't have the exposure, you can't get the, the audience and the sponsorship revenue. You don't have the sponsors. You can't get, you can't get onto the broadcast. So two things need to happen. One, we need a model that's more return on objective. And as society, we stop talking about embracing equality and gender equality and actually investing in it, then we're going to get there. We've been stuck for 20 years. We can talk all we want <clears throat> as society and how far we've come. The numbers don't stand. <laughs> it feels like there's some momentum here that there's been an, an unlocking of the code and the value to the brand to associate themselves with a Serena, with a Coco, with Venus is immense. And we're seeing this whole influencer world change, which is in essence what these professional female athletes are, that that will come with a new business model. Uh, and the reality of it is linear TV is now going to be analog almost streaming is going to be the gift to women's sport and to all sports that are not in the big, the big leagues. Production efficiencies and quality are vastly improved. Now we can afford for women's sport to be on and it's gonna get bundled with everything there. And Gen Z predominantly and the millennials, they don't wanna watch a two hour or four hour tennis match. The forms of content that they want will be short form and will be much more about the off-court and the personality and will be data-driven. All of that is going to change the economic model uh, of how um, advertisers engage with consumers. Sounds like that can, could benefit women because they've done so well no at question. managing platforms online and social yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What they're, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. And they're much more no, they know they women know we got to work harder and they know it. <laughs> I think we're ending this one on a positive note, Julie. Yeah, yeah. for once. That's a, that's a miracle. Uh, Stacey Allister, CEO of professional tennis at the USTA and the US Open. I honestly, you know, women like you working in sports for as long as you've been in gives me hope for the future and feeling like 
the women um, in the USDA are in good hands. Well, Julie, we uh, equally, uh, women like you, we're doing this for you. And uh, you're breaking your own glass ceilings. Jane has as well. And uh, our, you and our children who are coming up behind are going to live in an equal society. That's what drives me. That's, that's the hope of we're all hopefully pushing in the right direction. Stacey, thanks so much for, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you. Cheers. Uh, Stacey is amazing. Again, I as I said, I don't know how we keep getting these people to come on our show, but it's pretty great that we do. And tell us good stuff. Like that's really, you know, some behind the scenes stuff on Osaka and what happened in the wake and you know, how, what the, how the tournaments approached it, which I did not know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely correct. Yeah, that was, that. she's fascinating. I, I met her recently and was completely blown away by her. So, and she never disappoints every time I talk to her. She's fantastic. I And I'm, I'm completely honest. Like, I feel good about women's tennis because I know that Stacey is there, like, at the helm. So I feel great about it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, before we go, um, Tonight is Floyd Mayweather, Jake Paul. Is it Jake Paul or Logan Paul? Logan Paul. Logan Paul. Logan they're Paul. like they're interchangeable, as far as I know. Like, I, I, like Logan and Jake, like whatever. They're both horrible. <laughs> they're both like YouTubers who do like racist, sexist things. Like today, some video came out of Logan Paul like lassoing women in public. I saw he did that. all this stuff in Japan where he like threw a giant pokeball at poor Japanese people just like going to work. Um, like, they're just horrible. All this stuff came out about, I don't even know which Paul it was. I think it was Jake that has this house where he had all these influencers living and they were like sleeping on the floor and had no food and their parents were all trying to rescue them. And uh, Jake... Like a cult. Huh? Sounds like a cult. Yeah. And Jake uh, has been accused of sexually assaulting two different women and Logan has defended him. I mean, they're just they're just bad people. And, and I'm how just, do you feel about Floyd Mayweather? You know, I feel about Floyd Mayweather, <laughs> guy who's been to prison for uh, beating women multiple times. And, you know, every time Floyd Mayweather pops up, all these guys who are like, oh, I'm an ally, I'm an ally, just all rush to talk about Floyd Mayweather and no one brings this stuff up. And I'm just so tired of it. Um, I don't know why anyone would pay for this fight. I don't know why you'd want to give money to either Floyd Mayweather or Logan Paul or Jake Paul. Um, Chad Ochocinco's fighting on like the undercard, which we found out today. Sure, that's a, it's like, who else we got? Who else we got to make it through? Could Art Kelly fight? Does he have a pair of boxing gloves he could pick up and get in there? It is like fucking idiocracy. It is. I mean, if you have not seen Idiocracy, it started off as satire and now it's pretty much where we are in the world. So isn't isn't the boxing kind of because of the history of boxing and because the sport is essentially inflicting brain damage on your opponent intentionally? Is it something where and again, I've covered boxing and uh, I've I've and I know this is going to sound shocking, Julie, but I've enjoyed covering boxing and I've enjoyed watching fights live. I get a vicarious thrill out of it, which Punchy I people. appeal. I can see that about you. And I, you know, I played roller derby, so I do like <laughs> the physicality of sports. I really do. So I, I get boxing. But at the same time, it does feel like, you know, you don't put your kids in boxing, certainly not in the white neighborhoods anymore. Um, and so it's kind of become this afterthought of a sport in a lot of ways when it comes to i i think you know safety for the competitors 
the future of the sport, it does feel like it's kind of spiraling. And so it attracts people who are just there to watch the the ambulance come for the car crash. And uh, in some ways that makes me sad because I do think that it's a proud sport that has a, a really, um, it, it, there's a there is a storytelling that can go along with boxing. I mean, unfortunately people also die in the ring. So it is it is this really fraught sport. And it does feel like sometimes they're just like, oh, okay, well, who can we get to do this sport? That's fine. Yeah, I, you know, my, I have my family are Italians from the west side of Chicago. So we've had boxers. And I remember my cousin Lenny being on like ABC's Wide World of Sports boxing on Sunday afternoons. Um, his mom, by the way, incidentally, was a roller derby queen. So uh, there you go. See? It all comes um, in circle. It, I know. So, I mean, I, I get the beauty of the sport. I get, you know, I love watching old clips of Muhammad Ali, you know, and, and, and Joe Frazier and guys like that fighting. I mean, that to me was a much, as you said, prouder tradition than what we have right now in boxing. It's the like Kardashianization of boxing. It's obnoxious. And if you're paying money to watch this, just know that you're giving money to two really terrible people who are going to walk away with tens of millions of dollars from this stupid ass fight. <laughs> Jane and I will fight for hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> I don't know about pay-per-view. My, my, well, yeah, I don't know if I do mano a mano. I definitely. You wouldn't? Like, fight like in a boxing ring? Fight me. Yeah. Well, you. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Look, I, I'm sorry, Jane, for $10 million, I would crack you right across the face. <laughs> I mean, you know, but no, I, I'll be honest. I don't know that I would do that. I mean, there, I would have when I was younger, for sure. I, I don't know if I do it now. I mean, I kind of like, I don't necessarily believe in doing, in doing absolutely anything for an unlimited bag of cash anymore. I kind of really kind of, I'm not in that space anymore. I'll do it for fun. <laughs> if I want to do it. Wait, 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 wait. If they come to you and say, show. Jane, $20 million a piece for you and Julie to fight to the knockout or to one person knocking it up. You would not do it. I, you know what? I always evaluate any opportunity that comes my way right now um, by the first question is, would I want to do it? And then second, I ask how much would I get for doing it? So I, I actually think that the boxing match wouldn't cross the first barrier to anything I want to do. Look, I don't want to do it, but for $20 million, I would do it. <laughs> Okay. All right. Look, you set it up and then I'll, I'll get, I'll, you know, I'll ask myself again, do I want to do it once you yeah. have the payday lined up? Okay. And I'll send you a list of what $20 million will pay for. <laughs> but if I, if my, if I can, if I can, if I can no longer smell things, I'm not going to oh, well, I don't think I can hit you hard enough it. to like, I don't think I could do any real lasting damage. <laughs> I, don't I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, my dad taught me how to throw a punch, but like, I don't know how to, you know, block or have uppercuts or anything like that. We'll see. Okay. But actually this gets to the fundamental question. Let me pull this back around. Um, I think this has to do like, do you have options or not? Because the, if you answer, yes, I have options. Then the answer is no, I'm not going to box or no, I'm not going to put my kid in boxing. And so it does feel like, you know, the people that you watch box are kind of the people who didn't have options. And that's sad. It makes me sad to watch boxing. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, unfortunately, both these people have options. They're just assholes. Well, they, well, okay. All right. <laughs> you know what? I'm not, I'm not giving them my money. I'm not giving them my money. No, There's I'm not. I don't, even, I don't even want to know who wins. I don't even want to know who wins. Like, I know it's going to be a big deal on Twitter. I'm going to ignore it. The whole thing to me is so aggravating. It's so aggravating to me that you can go to prison 
for beating women, multiple different women, different times that you can have. We have this story about his child climbing out the bathroom window and running to get help while Floyd Mayweather is beating the crap out of his mom in the living room. And that's fine. People will still pay to watch him box. I don't understand awesome. that. I really don't. I mean, it's it's the same thing with not being able to watch Woody Allen films. I can't anymore with people that I, you know, right. that I have. It's just, it's not even like a choice at this point. It's just, there's no, nothing. There's nothing. You couldn't pay me $20 million to give 10 bucks to watch that pay-per-view. Right. I wouldn't even go to a bar and watch it. I don't want this to, I, it, it's, it's so aggravating. Yeah. And by the way, we had Stephen A. Smith doing like cribs. Um, last time, I think it was Mayweather Pacquiao when he did the giant, like he did the, oh, let's go see how Floyd Mayweather lives. And I was like, jerk. Well, it, it does. It normalizes that whole thing. Yeah. And and this is not somebody, Mayweather did not have an epiphany, you know, unlike a lot of people who have been in that situation, like, you know, Ray Rice, let's start, you know, Ray Rice really did do some reflecting and try to figure out who he was, what he was about, what his relationship was worth, what kind of parent he wanted to be, et cetera. Um, we have not had any sort of growth or development like that on the Mayweather end of it. It is the same as it was. And so, you know, there are, there are people who I do think could, could have a background, you know, who you want, who you would want to reevaluate and see what their story is, you know, later, but this is not one of them. Right. So to give money and to just be like, well, okay, then I guess we got to treat them like we always did. It's not, that's not the way it has to be. Yes. But- and one of my favorite things is that every time Floyd Mayweather boxes, there are a group of people who are pretty prominent sports writers who all start screaming about Floyd Mayweather. It's my favorite thing. Um, just to know that there's people out there who do still care and yeah. who are as appalled by this as we are um, is good to know. So um, before we go, is there anything I should be watching? Uh, I, <laughs> I am I'm watching The Queen's Gambit. Oh, so good. I'm, you know what, this is basically, this podcast is about, uh, you know, um, prestige series on television that I am six months late to. <laughs> I haven't watched Ted Lasso yet. I haven't watched Mayor of Easttown yet. I'm way behind. I got to yeah, pick up pack, Packers. Is that what it's you called? know what, in, in like another six months, we can get on the pod and you can be like, you are not going to believe this show Mayor of Easttown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to watch it today once I got done working and then I just like, I, I was working on the couch and when I was done, I literally closed my laptop. I just kind of tipped over onto my side and SVU was on and that was it for me. I just watched SVU for the rest of the day. <laughs> Excellent work. I'm going to try to do better. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, thanks to uh, Stacey Allister for joining us. She was terrific. Uh, thanks to everyone who gives us a listen. If you like the pod, we hope that you'll go leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. Give us a follow on Twitter at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. Please read our work over at Deadspin and we'll see you guys next week here in the Ladies Room.